And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you all for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? I'm sick. I think it's a mix of um, just like powering through San Diego Comic-Con and then working the full week after coming back. Um, and today is Sunday, so the second day of the day off during a weekend, if that makes sense. So, like, yesterday we did errands, and so I was still kind of powering through, and then today I got to sleep in, and my body was like, oh, we're taking a break? Cool. Here's the con cred. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm sorry you're feeling sick, Sarah. Me too. (laughs) I'm planning on going to bed early tonight, depending on, you know, this movie we are watching. Yeah, I, Hopefully it's not another Bride of Frankenstein situation where we spent, like, two hours discussing the movie. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> what are um, we watching? So, today, Sarah, we are watching Return of the Ape Man. And uh, we've done it. We've reached the end of Bela Lugosi's nine films that he made for Sam Katzman and Monogram Pictures. Good job. Yeah. High five. Um, before I get into sort of talking a bit more about the movie, there is some uh, quick sort of announcements I want to make at the top of the show. Announcements sounds really, like, serious. Some quick notes. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not really the tone I'm going for oh. here. I, oh, dear. I, I'm trying to... I don't even know what, what's no, going on. Yeah, I, I, just some notes here at the top of the show. Some things I wanted to address. Um, the first thing I wanted to talk about is... The notion that we are in competition with the Rank and Vile podcast? Oh, I thought we were friends with them. We are friends with them. They're good guys over there. It's a good show. I think there's this, like, impression online that we're competitors. And the thing is, is, like, their show does something very different than what our show does. Like, we both watch horror movies and then rank them from best to worst. But they kind of... Like, A, jump around in time and just kind of watch whatever they want. And they cover, like, multiple movies in a single episode. And they don't really do, like, the academic contextualizing that we do. It's more of just, like, the discussion. And also they have a very, very broad definition of what counts as a horror movie for the sake of their podcast. Like, I think they've got some wrestling matches up there on the list. But it's a really fun show, and uh, they they do a really good job on that show. And I think it's really important that the podcast market should be able to like support both like our super nerdy show <laughs> for like pedants and pedants, yeah, pedantic people. Oh, I think I was thinking of peasants. <laughs> and. And they're, like, goofy, fun, normal people show. So, yeah, we are not enemies with Rank and Vile. of course not. Like, sometimes we web each other online on Twitter, but, like, it's all in good fun. Yeah, it's just weird that we both started at about the exact same time (laughs) with a show that has, like, very similar premises. Great minds think alike. It's, It's an Armageddon and... Deep Impact? Deep Impact situation. The Illusionist and The Prestige. Uh, I'm not going to say which one of us is which movie. <laughs> you said announcements as in plural, so, so is the next a second thing? Well, the next thing I wanted to say was I just wanted to put a message out for um, two of our listeners, um, Ava and Mallory. And just to those two listeners, I just want to say I hope you guys are doing well and that... Things are going well for you this summer, and uh, that things continue to get better. Mm-hmm. Mallory is one of our patrons, right? That's right. Yeah, she's really nice, um, at least from what I see of her on Twitter. Finally, uh, we got an email from a listener, Lawrence Cornford, who wanted to bring a movie to our attention oh. um, called Went the Day Well. It's a 1942 British war propaganda movie. Okay. Um, Similar to the later film, The Eagle Has Landed, the premise of the film is 
hey, what if the Nazis won World War II? Um, or at least invaded and occupied Britain. And the movie kind of starts with, like, that's your assumed premise. And then it's about, like, the people of this, like, British village, like, fighting back against the Nazis. So it's this very, like, you know, 1942, middle of the war, here's what we're trying to prevent, why we're fighting kind of propaganda movie. And uh, Lawrence suggested it for the show because the way that the movie works as propaganda is, like, the first act is showing you, like, the Nazis just doing horrific things to everyone Mm. in this, like, English village. Like, just brutal, brutal stuff that they were able to kind of get away with putting in a movie because it was propaganda. Sure. Um, And so it's kind of this, like, horrific nightmare scenario. And so, you know, does it count as horror because of that? Um, Right now, we don't have a way to watch that movie. It's not really readily available on any streaming services here in Canada. uh, So we'd have to hunt down the uh, DVD. But at the moment, I'm kind of leaning to no on this one in terms of covering it on the show because it wasn't really, like, marketed or intended as or produced as, like, a horror movie. Um, So it's kind of, in terms of trying to track the, like, evolution of the genre, it's a real, like... Outlier? Outlier. And it comes back to the point I've made a few times about, like, a movie with horrific scenes is not necessarily a horror movie, right? Um, but Lawrence Dead's have some good arguments. Um, one of the most persuasive was that it's a good movie, and he thought maybe <laughs> we'd enjoy that after, like, how many, like, just bottom-of-the-barrel uh, Poverty Row, you know, B-movies we've been slogging through lately. Sure, thanks for looking out for us. Which brings me back around to Return of the Ape Man. Great. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's been a slog... But we've had fun along the way. I think more than not, yeah. So this was Bela Lugosi's next movie after doing Voodoo Man, which had also been for Monogram Pictures. And the title, Return of the Ape Man, um, sort of implies this to be a sequel to Lugosi's sixth Monogram film, which was The Ape Man. And I have to admit, Sarah, my memory of The Ape Man's a little foggy. I remember... (laughs) Lugosi with mutton chops and a wig, and I remember an ape in a cage, and I remember, like, a girl getting threatened, but, like, that's about it. So, yeah, that's a great transition into, um, when I was looking up the plot of this movie to, like, remind myself and summarize things, I had no recollection of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) There were parts where I was like, oh, yeah, but then other parts I was like, the fuck? So what happened in Ape Man? So the Ape Man, it's episode 101, if you want to take a listen. And it stars Bella Lugosi as Dr. James Brewster, who, along with a Dr. Randall, has been experimenting with ape stuff. Like, whether it's glands or spinal fluid, it's probably spinal fluid, but in, the, in any case, the results are that Brewster has become an ape man and needs human spinal fluid in order to turn back to a man. Um, however, removal of spinal fluid kills the donor. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, reporter Jeff Carter and photographer Billy Mason are looking into the uh, so-called disappearance of Brewster. He's kind of retreated from the public eye. Is this the one where Wallace Ford is the reporter and then... And the title of our episode is um, Why Aren't You in the Army? Right, because they have to address why he hasn't gotten drafted and Billy Mason, the photographer, is a woman and it's all like, I don't want no dame on my shift kind of stuff. Exactly. Um, So along the way of researching the disappearance of Brewster, they meet his sister, Agatha, and it's at this point that I was like, the fuck? Um, Agatha is a ghost hunter. No, I do remember this now. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, and they go to her house and she kind of, like, cold reads them. Yeah. She, Agatha, that is, later learns of her brother's condition, and Randall explains to her that he refuses to help do these spinal fluid transfusions, basically, and take part in murder. Right. So, as a result, Booster and the ape that they have who has, like, a tenuous relationship with Booster. Um, Booster has, like, a whip and commands him with yeah. words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the ape is always, like, a little, like, well, I'll do it this time, but next time you're really gonna get it. Yeah. Um, so they started killing Sri to go get fluid. Booster goes to Randall with some new fluid from a recently dead person and demands that Randall help him. Randall, in response, 
breaks the bottle, so that fluid's now lost, so Brewster breaks his neck. Right, yeah. Meanwhile, separately, Billy and Jeff investigate Brewster's home, and there's a bit of a comedic cat and mouse thing where they each think that they are the like person that they're looking for, because they just keep hearing sounds. In the midst of that, Billy accidentally knocks Jeff unconscious, and then she gets taken captive by Brewster to be the next spinal fluid donor. Right. Jeff comes to just in time as the police arrive, and they save Billy, and in the midst of the chaos, uh, the ape escapes and attacks Brewster and kills him. Um, now, throughout all of the film, uh, there's also an odd character that comes in and out, and at the end, they're like, hey, so who are you anyways? And he says that he is the author of this story and rolls up a window that says the end on the car. Right, so yeah, So that's, yeah. like, something that definitely stuck out of my head. Yeah, this is, yeah, where he's like, screwy story, isn't it? And, like, drives away. Yeah, I do remember that now. So as you said, this was uh, from Monogram and Sam Katzman. Uh, it is currently ranked number 95. That's low. It's not a good movie. (laughs) I know it may surprise you. I will just lastly note that the ape is played by Emil Van Horn, as opposed to Ray Crash Corrigan. You know, these monogram movies, like, I feel like nothing makes them sound crazier than, like, saying them back after, like, some time has passed from watching them. Because, like, in the moment... You kind of are almost like, yeah, sure, and then you're, like a, you're just on the roller coaster ride. Yeah, and then and a few months later, it. you're like, wait, what was the story of that one? Yeah, I was like, she's a ghost hunter, and yeah. then I remembered that, like, she explicitly says that, yeah, I, I just came back from a tour in Europe, Europe. and it's yeah, like, yeah, I remember that because we've already established that the war is going on, and it was just a little grim because it's like, yeah, I guess that's where you'd want to go to investigate ghosts. So, <laughs> here's the thing, Sarah. Yeah. While the title seems to imply this is a sequel, it might be a sequel in name only kind of situation. Which would make sense because Brewster, Lugosi's character, dies. Yeah, and Lugosi is playing a different character in this movie, although it is, of course, still a mad scientist. Mm. The director for this film is German-American Philip Rosen, who directed 142 films between 1915 and 1949. Uh, including six Charlie Chan movies in the space of a year from 1944 to 1945, so starring Sidney Toller. All right. So this is, you know... He just cranks them out. Yeah, like, this is uh, five years before the end of his career, but, like, it's not like his career had slowed down. He was just, you know, working for Poverty Row Studios, just cranking these movies out. The script is by Robert Charles who was the writer of Voodoo Man. Oh. And I would say that this was his final writing credit, uh, but he doesn't even receive an on-screen credit in the movie. That's odd. So no one no one wanted to take responsibility for writing this one. <laughs> and I will remind you that Voodoo Man was Charles's first movie credit. So he had two movies, Voodoo Man and this, and he didn't put his name on this one. Oh, no. Hey, speaking of Voodoo Man, um, that was directed by William Bodine, who also directed The Ape Man. Um, If you want to listen to more about Voodoo Man, that's episode 114. So the advertising for Return of the Ape Man makes it appear to be a reunion of the Voodoo Man trio of Bella Lugosi, George Zuko, and John Carradine, with Carradine joining Lugosi this time as another mad scientist. He's like Lugosi's assistant, or sidekick, or whatever. Cool. And uh, then Zuko is playing the titular Ape Man. Okay, that's a surprise. He hasn't really played a role like this before. Yeah, he's usually the mad scientist, not the monster, right? Yeah. So we last saw Carradine in The Invisible Man's Revenge, and uh, we last saw Zuko in Voodoo Man. Now, Zuko, for this film, went through the process of being put into the makeup and the costume for his character, and appears in stills for the movie, but in the final edit of the film, he only appears for a few seconds at the start of the film, in, like, the first two shots where his character is clearly visible. And then is not in the rest of the movie. Oh. The official story is that Zuko came down with an illness 
and had to back out of production, uh, and the role had to be recast. But two competing alternative stories are that either Zuko dropped out when he decided the role was too inane even for him. He has a high tolerance for that. Yeah, his policy was not to say no to any role. Yeah. Or alternatively, the producers recast the part when they realized that the 58-year-old actor whose arm had been permanently damaged in World War I would not be able to convincingly give the part the amount of physical menace it required, like, say, carrying the lead female character around, uh, you know, monster style. I'm really curious why they cast him there. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to cast him at all, given how completely unsuitable he was for it. Like, it makes sense that they then recast it, but it's bizarre that they got that far into it before it was like, oh, wait, this isn't going to work. Yeah, it's like Carradine, I'm really happy to be seeing Carradine in a presumably speaking role. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Because he's the youngest, and also lanky. Yeah. You know, he would make a good, like, suit actor, I think. Yeah. He's kind of a Doug Jones sure. stature. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm really curious. But it, it because this is a kind of a follow-up to Voodoo Man in terms of getting the actors together, like, I feel like the thought was originally another reunion film. Yeah. So you, you can see that with the fact that despite him being only in two shots for a few seconds, Zuko's name is still third build in the credits and in the marketing as playing the ape man. So does that mean that he was still handsomely paid? I don't know about handsomely, but... (laughs) Like whatever monogram's version of handsomely paid is? Yeah, I assume he was still paid. I don't know about handsome. So... He's handsome in his own way. In the actual movie, the role of the ape man would be played by former boxer Frank Moran. Now, you do recognize the name, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he was only a year younger than Zuko, but he was in much better physical shape. Uh, He had studied to be a dentist in university, played pro football after school, served in the U.S. Navy, and then after his military service, he was a pro boxer and twice fought for the title of world heavyweight champion. But he never won it. His career record was 36 wins in 66 bouts. After his last fight in 1922, he went into acting, typically playing gangsters, henchmen, sailors, cops, bouncers, soldiers, etc. He appeared in hundreds of films in these minor roles from 1928 to 1957, and we previously saw him in 1942's Corpse Vanishes as Angel, one of Lugosi's minions in that movie. Okay. So Return of the Ape Man opened on June 24th, 1944, to mixed reviews and low box office. Critics gave Lugosi his due, but complained that the premise of the film was tired and old hat, and that these movies really needed, like, some new ideas in their scripts. (laughs) I have a feeling we will agree with that. The film is, of course, like all of the Monogram 9, in the public domain, and has also recently been restored on Blu-ray by Olive Films, who also did the recent Blu-ray restoration of Voodoo Man. An unrestored version is on our YouTube playlist. Uh, We will be watching the restoration. Oh, sweet. Olive Films, man. Really curious what their business plan is. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, if you would like to watch along, you can head to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, find our YouTube playlist, and uh, click along there. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Return of the Ape Man from 1944, directed by Philip Rosen. See you on the other side, everybody. Scream scene. We just finished watching Return of the Ape Man from 1944, directed by Philip Rosen. Just a heads up that the people who live above us in our apartment building are playing their TV a little loud. 
So apologies if you pick up anything like that. I'll do my best to fix it in post. What did you think, Ben? You know, maybe it was lowered expectations, but I actually enjoyed this a lot more than I thought I would. This movie is undoubtedly cheap and derivative and poorly written, but I have to admit I found something charming about it. And I don't know if it was just seeing Carradine and Lugosi play off each other, or if it was the somewhat unorthodox plot structure, or just the movie's willingness to seemingly throw everything at the wall, but I enjoyed this more than I thought I would. Hmm. I didn't really enjoy this movie. Mm-hmm. It's not like I actively hated it, but nothing really makes me more excited for the 50s sci-fi genre than a movie like this, because once the sci-fi genre is kind of more established, we won't have to watch the same old stuff all the time. Yeah, it's it's interesting, though, how, like, I feel like, you know, before starting this project, if you asked me, like, what were the common flavors of horror to, like, various eras, right? I would be like, well, you know, the 1930s are your kind of, like, gothic spooky castle European supernatural horror, and 1940s stuff is like that, but cheaper, and also maybe, like, some psychological horror stuff from, like, RKO. And then I wouldn't really start thinking about, like, mad scientists and sci-fi stuff until the 50s, but, like, when you run the numbers back... Like, Mad Scientist is the default go-to, if you have no ideas, mode for horror movies. And it has been for a long time now. Yeah, because of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Now, we might be getting ahead of ourselves here. How about you tell us about the plot? Sure. So, it's as predictable as it is unorthodoxly structured. (laughs) Um, We begin with the notice that a homeless person has disappeared like a newspaper headline, which is, that's certainly like a different era in time if a homeless person vanishing gets a whole newspaper headline. But uh, it turns out that he was abducted by our two mad scientists, Dr. Dexter, played by Bella Lugosi, and Professor Gilmore, played by John Carradine. So they've brought this guy down into Dexter's lab. <laughs> you were just dying for that. And they've basically put him in deep freeze for four months, and now they've brought him out, and they're reviving him. So this is basically Dexter proving that he can do suspended animation. And it's a total success, and the homeless guy wakes up, and they give him, like, five bucks and send him on his way. And as far as he knows, he, like, fell asleep drunk in the park last night. He has no idea that he's been out for four months. By the way, we did the math. $5 in 1944 is like $80 now. Yeah, $72 and some cents, yeah. Yeah. So, experiment successful, science achieved, end of movie, right? Well, <laughs> no. Lugosi's like, ah, but what if I could bring back someone who'd been dead for hundreds of thousands of years? And uh, Carradine's like, well, too bad we can't live long enough to successfully do that experiment. And Lugosi's like, ah, but what if I could find someone who'd been buried in the ice for hundreds of thousands of years? And Carradine's like, okay, but how are we going to do that? So they go on an Arctic expedition, uh, and they bring, it's them and a couple of guys going through, you know, the Arctic Circle uh, in Alaska, presumably, with a couple of pickaxes, just hoping they'll find a dude buried in the ice that they can then bring back to life. And Carradine's like, I don't think this is going to work. I have a wife and a family, and I need to go home. Like, we're going to be at this forever. And Lugosi's like, a true scientist is married to his profession. (laughs) And then um, some, like, ice falls into the sea um, from, like, you know, glacial stuff. Global warming? I mean, it's 1944. It's not global warming yet. Uh, (laughs) But the stock film used to show, like, glaciers falling into the water really gets that climate anxiety up, I will say. I think it's meant to be just from, like, normal, like, Yeah, but here in the year of our Lord, 2019, it's it's a different story. It goes without saying that all of the uh, shots of them going on this Arctic expedition are stock footage from earlier movies, documentaries and stuff. Uh, So when the ice shifts, it reveals a caveman buried in the ice, and it's perfect. 
So they bring him back, and this caveman is the ape man of the title. And the movie is really undecided about just what this guy is. Suffice to say, I suspect that he was written as something different than what he ended up being, because they he's described in dialogue as being halfway between ape and man, like a missing link type. Yeah, yeah. And everyone who sees him is like, yeah, he looked more like an ape than a man, and they constantly call him an ape, but he definitely just looks like... A caveman. A caveman. He's like halfway between Geico Caveman and Fred Flintstone. Anyways, he's George Zuko for like two shots while he's unconscious on the table, and then they bring him back to life and he's Frank Moran. And, uh, hey... Again, science. Successful. Great. Carradine's like, awesome. We'll get him to the Museum of Natural History. We'll all be famous. This is going to be great. And the ghost, he's like, ah, no, actually. Uh, I have other plans. Turns out what Legosi wants to do is he wants to be able to, like, you know, question and talk to the ape man uh, to, like, you know, ask him about his life in the prehistoric past. But, of course, he's, you know, an ape man. So he can't. So Lugosi's plan is he's going to remove some brain from a modern human and replace some of the ape man's brain with that brain. Not enough brain to, like, completely change the ape man into a different person, just enough to give him, like, the powers of speech and reason, uh, but still leave his memory intact. And Carradine points out that, like, right, but taking that bit of brain out of someone else is going to either render them an idiot or most likely kill them. No one's going to, you know... Volunteer. Volunteer for that. Uh, you know, and if you kill them, then that's murder. And the ghost is like, ah, science doesn't recognize such a word. And Carradine's like, eh, I think... I think that's a problem. I think you might be unethical, my dude. Um, so Carradine has Professor Gilmore. I should be using character names, not the actor names. Professor Gilmore has, um, an interesting family set up. He has a wife, he has a niece, and then there's his niece's fiancé, Steve, who is (laughs) studying law. Uh, Steve is played by Michael Ames, who was the hero of Voodoo Man as well. And Dr. Dexter decides that Steve is the perfect guy to volunteer some brain matter. So he gets Steve over to his house on some false pretenses and drugs him and has him, like, in the laboratory ready to do the surgery and meanwhile, everyone at the Gilmore household's like, where's Steve? Like, wh- where's Steve? Like, I don't, you know, him and Dexter have been gone for a while. And Professor Gilmore's like, oh, fuck. So he goes over to Dexter's place and is like, hey, no. you, you do any surgery on Steve and I will shoot you. And he pulls a gun out of his uh, coat pocket like any good American. <laughs> and Presumably this is an open carry state? Or it's the 40s. I don't know how things I, work. Yeah. So he threatens to kill Dexter. So Dexter's like, okay, okay, I, I won't, I won't, you know, cut his head open. Let's, I drugged him though, so he won't remember anything. We'll let him go, like, throwing a fish back into the pond that was too small. And Carradine's <laughs> like, that was, you know, completely despicable. You would have killed that guy if I hadn't stopped you. Like, I don't want anything more to do with you. We're done, we're through. And if you were smart, you will destroy the ape man in the basement because he's a primitive animal and his first instinct will be for murder. Which, I love, that comes up so much in these movies, and I love that, because it's like, really? Is that an animal's first instinct? Murder? Anyways. So, sure enough, the ape man does get free, and he uh, kills a policeman before Lugosi can kind of round him back up and bring him back down to the lab. With the a blowtorch. The way that Lugosi has figured out he can control the ape man is with a handheld blowtorch, because, of course... He's afraid of fire. But this blowtorch, like, just has, like, a, a a knob that allows you to control, like, how much fire is coming out. And I don't think the ghost realizes just how much fire is coming out around these cardboard sets. <laughs> it makes it a little tense at times. So, Gilmore reads in the paper, like, mysterious monster kills policeman. And and also, like, they say that the policeman, like, had his neck broken, but, like, when you watch the movie, it just looks like Frank Moran gave him the Vulcan neck pinch. Yeah. Anyways, and Gilmore's like, ah, it's the ape man who got loose. At this time, Dexter phones him and is like, hey, let's destroy the ape man. You were right. And Gilmore's like, cool, I'm glad you've come to reason. I'll come over right away to uh, help you destroy the ape man. And he goes down to the basement, 
and Lugosi has set up a science trap in the basement where apparently if you're standing on a metal plate that's connected to some electrodes uh, while you turn on a vacuum tube across the room, it'll form a circuit between your brain waves and the vacuum tube, which will then like short circuit or whatever, and you'll be paralyzed, which I don't think that's how anything works, but whatever. He science traps him. And then he's like, now to put your brain into the ape man so he won't kill people anymore because you're so ethical. We might as well put your ethical brain in the ape man. <laughs> um, yeah, Lugosi does a great job of like putting in some sass in some of these lines. Mm-hmm. That's the end of John Carradine. Uh, his brain gets stuffed into the ape man. This surgery is done without, you know, any leftover, like, scars or needing to shave the ape man's hair or anything. It's completely non-invasive brain surgery. Which is an achievement in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. Good job, Lugosi. So, things kind of go worse here. The ape man, who is also kind of Gilmore, escapes again. And he goes to Gilmore's house. And meanwhile, Gilmore's family's been worried because he's been gone for so long. And he climbs up into the bedroom, or he climbs up into the living room that's upstairs, which is <laughs> whatever, uh, and starts playing the piano. And everyone in the house is like, oh, it's Professor Gilmore, he's back, because he's playing like a particular piece of music that Carradine really liked. And so his wife goes into the room, and the ape man slash Gilmore strangles her to death, and then leaves, and then goes back to Dexter's place. And Dexter's like, why did you kill her? And the ape man's like, sorry, it was a mistake. I just, it was by by accident. I'm sorry. He really does look dejected. Like a puppy that, like, you've walked in on and having, it's peed on the carpet. And the puppy knows that it's not supposed to pee on the carpet. And it's just like, I'm sorry. Yeah. So now Professor Gilmore's wife's dead. So her niece... Uh, Steve's fiance. I don't remember. She has a name, isn't it? It's like Hilda? Or was that the wife's name? No, that that was the wife's name. I I got nothing. She's not even in the cast list on Wikipedia. Oh, no. Anne? Was it Anne? It was Anne. So Gilmore's niece, uh, Anne, is now, you know, quite upset. What with her aunt and uncle being... Her uncle being missing. She doesn't know he's dead. Slash in an ape man. Uh, and her aunt being dead. So she's just kind of hysterical. Steve and the police go off to Dexter's house, because it's the only other place in the movie, uh, to go find the ape man. Uh, And Dexter's like, ape man? What ape man? What are you talking about? Because he's put the ape man in the cage that he has downstairs in his laboratory, like any good mad scientist has, and then hit the button to put the fake wall in front of the cage, again, like any good mad scientist has. And, you know, the cops are like, well, let's, can you show us your lab? He's like, oh, of course, officer, there's nothing down here. (laughs) No way. And that's when the ape man smashes through the fake wall, and everyone's like, holy shit. And the ape man starts attacking Dexter, and the police just shoot all the bullets at them. And uh, the bullets have no effect on the ape man for reasons and the ape man escapes he's immune to bullets right because he's a monster in a horror movie but for no other reason yeah um and dexter who's been shot by all the bullets instead is like oh you cannot the only way to kill him is fire and then he dies it was for science i did it all for science my love which like he's like thanos loving death I mean, <laughs> like the this, like the the idea of science. He's just like yes, and like okay, fire, like fire will kill anything. Like yeah, the idea that is... fire is the only. It's like Martian Manhunter. It's like I'm weak to fire. Yes, yeah, so am I, John Jones. Like, anyways, <laughs> so they go after the ape man, and now there are more than two locations in this movie. Uh, we've just been going back and forth between Dexter and Gilmore's house. But now we run over the entire city. Like, it's like a fucking Keystone cop short up in here. They run to various different locations, into a theater at one point, up on top of the roofs at one point. Um, I forgot to mention that during this chase sequence, the ape man does make it back to Gilmore's house and captures Anne. Because 
Of course he of course he does. He's uh, the monster in a horror movie, and she's the girl in the horror movie. And because he's a primitive ape man, you know, he's just like "Mm, she's pretty. Uh, And so we know like what he wants with Anne. But I suspect because the movie's a little bit confused, I think it wasn't ever really clear like how much of the ape man is Gilmore. You know, like. And how much is the ape man? Like, are they, what's going on there? I suspect this is the reason why Anne is his niece and not his daughter. Because even if you could make the argument of, like, he's not really Gilmore, it's still a little bit grosser if she's his daughter and the ape man's, like, with his brain in it, is like, oh, pretty, you know? So now it's his niece. So he kidnaps Anne. The cops and Steve chase them all around completely ineffectually. And finally he just goes back to Dexter's lab. Um, where this whole chase started, so it really feels like we accomplished a lot during the 20 minutes that we were running around on rooftops. Well, that's like a reel and a half. Yeah. You know, so we did accomplish a lot. We we got to uh, feature film length. Right. It, it has sort of the feeling of, like, movie serials, where people just, like, run around from location to location to, to eat up time. Uh, he makes it back to the lab, and he throws Anne in the cooler, and then he tries to, like, turn it on. I think and, he does that accidentally. Or he does it with, like, some memory that Gilmore has or something. Regardless, it causes a spark. And the ape man's like, huh, sparks, neat. So he starts ripping up all the electrics in the place to make more sparks, which causes the place to light on fire. And then Steve runs down and rescues Anne, and everybody gets out of the building, which then goes up in flame, burning the ape man alive. The end. So the idea of freezing people and trying to do suspended animation, we've seen that idea in a horror movie before with Karloff's Man with Nine Lives. Yes, and I think it's maybe cropped up in between those two, but I think Man with Nine Lives was like the first time we saw it, because that was certainly the movie where they had to like stop and explain the idea to us. Yeah, and that was 1940, so mm-hmm. four years ago. Many episodes ago, though, that's episode 76, and we're on episode 120. Yeah. So, like, I say only four years, but a lot of stuff's happened in those four years. Um, I think this is the first instance of a caveman we've seen. Yes, in a a horror movie. I don't know if they've popped up in, like, you know, sci-fi or adventure movies or whatever, but in horror, for sure. Yeah, um, which is kind of neat, because any other time that there's been ape men or, like, ape people, it's been, like, blood transfusions, gland thingamajigs, blood things. It's been hybrids. It's been, it's been human-ape hybrids. Yeah. Even go, going all the way back to Murders in the Room Morgue, where, like, there was bestiality themes, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it's, it's interesting that we're now, like, bringing up evolution. Especially when you think about, um... Island of Lost Souls, and how it was, like, you know, difficult to even talk about the idea of a missing link. The science in this movie, I mean, it's hilarious, of course. Like, it's... It's not well-researched, like, a Luton film, you know? Yeah, they keep, they keep insisting that Frank Moran looks more like an ape than a man, but as I said earlier, he just looks like a hairy dude in animal skins. The, the Geico ape man, or like the Geico caveman is the perfect description. Except, I mean, the Geico caveman at least has like the like Neanderthal brow. This guy doesn't even really have that, you know? But it is kind of cool to see a movie from 1944 that just casually takes evolution as a given, mm-hmm. and it doesn't try to make it controversial. It doesn't even try to like soften it a little bit by talking about God or religion. Like, nobody says anything about Lugosi playing God or tampering with the forces of, you know, the creator or whatever. Um, Lugosi isn't even trying to prove evolution by saying, here, I found the missing link. Um, He's just trying to prove that he can bring a dead man back to life and then uplift a prehistoric man to a modern man with a brain transplant. So that was something that I thought was kind of neat. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think the fact that it is so scientific, <laughs> not scientific as in accurate, but scientific as in vibe, I guess. The ethos of the movie is scientific, even if the um, research was not done. Is <laughs> why I kind of linked it to the 50s science fiction boom. Right. You know, um, I mean, we're not making giant insects or anything like that, but the feeling of like science... We've seen the science for science sake reasoning for mad scientists all the way to 
Frankenstein. Yeah. You know? But um, this is the first time where, like, as you said, there's no, like, I'm playing God. Yeah. No one's bringing a religious aspect into it. But now it, it, I know what it's like to be God. But But there is still that, like, very distinctly, like, 1940s, 1950s understanding of science as just being this, like, capital S thing, and, like, scientists are this, like, particular type of human being that are, like, psychologically different from regular old people. Well, here's the thing. That's also what's interesting about Carradine. Mm. Because he is, like, I'm a scientist, but I have a family. And what you're doing, Lugosi, I mean, Dexter, is a bit too far. Yeah. Like, even... Uh, like, I think this is just something Carradine's bringing in, to be fair. Um, there's a little bit with the plot, but um, he, <laughs> when he's, when they're in the Arctic, and Carradine's like, you know, I have a wife and family, like, kind of, we've been here for ten months, can we not be in the Arctic anymore? And Lugosi's like, I am married to science. Carradine rolls his eyes yeah. and sighs like, oh, this again. It's yeah. so good. He has some really good dialogue later where when Lugosi's giving like what I would consider to be a very standard for this kind of movie speech about how like science does not care about morality or ethics. We'll just murder whoever we please so long as we know about science and so on. Carradine's like, that's, that's not how science works. Like, he straight up says, like, science doesn't... Nothing in science says you have to murder people. Like, you're just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Which um, I, I appreciated, because sometimes these movies really do seem to imply that, like, yeah, this is what scientists are. They're just amoral, complete nutcases. Mm-hmm. Besides Lugosi and Carradine, the movies, like, everyone else is fine. Um, they exist. Yeah, they're just kind of blah. And honestly, I feel that even down to the cinematography and directing a bit. There's nothing exciting really going on here. It's not the most bland we've seen from Poverty Row. Um, Like, there was some camera movement that I occasionally noticed, but it's also not really trying. It's, It's sort of... It's as competent as you would expect someone who'd been directing movies since 1915 to be. Yeah. Um, But that's about it. Um, Well, I was surprised because... During the credits, I noticed that the cinematographer is Marcel Le Bacard, Okay. Um, who's like this French cinematographer, and he's done other Poverty Row films, he's done other Monogram 9 films. He did The Invisible Ghost in 1941. Right, uh, and you which, really liked that one. Yeah, it was very gothic, down from the plot to the way it was filmed and everything like that. So I was, like, this is three years after that, so I was surprised that, like, someone who clearly has, like, the ability to do a bit more didn't really do it here. And I, I don't know if it's just, like, I don't want to say that they aren't trying. I wonder, though, because they had to change the casting for the eight-man, like, monogram usually only gives, like, a week for filming. Like, I, I just wonder if they were scrambling to get shit done. I also think it might be you know, a matter of the different director. Uh, we talked about when we watched Invisible Ghost that, like, the director of that movie was noted for putting more effort into these low-budget movies than many other directors did and going on to have, like, a successful film noir career, mm-hmm. whereas this is someone who's near the end of his career and is just, you know, cranking out movies. There's nothing about the movie that's, like, incompetently shot, um where it becomes obvious that the movie is cheap is mostly the sets, which are all really obviously fake. Um, like, there's one point where the caveman's breaking out of the jail, and, like, obviously the two bars he's trying to break through, like, are meant to bend in a certain way, but at one point he accidentally, like, breaks one of the other bars in a way where it, like, comes out of its socket for a moment. Mm-hmm. Like, clearly that wasn't supposed to happen. But there's a couple of other instances of, like, yeah, that was a first take, and they just went with it. Mm-hmm. Like, at one point, Lugosi gestures to someone off-screen, but it's, he's the only one in the, on the set. He's the. It's the first time he's using the blowtorch, and I feel like what it is is he's, like, looking off-screen to, like, a safety technician, being like, okay, am I, am I good? Am I, am I good? Like, and then getting, like, a, yep, you're good, and then keeps going. Yeah. And it's just, like, not <laughs> edited out of the shot. 
So, Robert Charles wrote this movie, uh, and he also wrote Voodoo Man, which was also pretty wild. Yes. Um, I would say that that film is more wild than this, be- probably because that has, like, super, like magic shit going yeah. on, versus this, which feels a bit more grounded, probably because of the science ethos we've identified. So, here's something that was weird about this movie to me. It feels like Robert Charles knows all the narrative tropes of a mad scientist movie, but doesn't know any of the narrative rules of a mad scientist movie. Um, like, the plot against Steve, right? To to get his brain into the ape. In a, I feel like in a normal movie, that's that would have happened. And then the story would be Steve's brain is in the ape. And then the ape's going around doing killings and stuff. And then he's, you know, in love with Anne. So he goes after Anne. And then there's pathos at the end. Like, do we restore Steve? Do we kill Steve? Whatever, right? That would be the movie. And instead that just gets, like, foiled rather easily in the first act. Uh, And then that leads to Carradine being used instead. um, Which then leads to, like, I think some really unintentionally subversive stuff with him killing his own wife and being sexually attracted to his own niece. Like, I feel like that's yeah. not, not happening on wanted. purpose, right? Yeah. But it's like, because it's a little more subversive than, you know, code-era movies tend to get to be. Then you've got Lugosi, who's the main villain, but his death isn't the climax of the movie. It's the start of the third act which then is in more of the mold of, like, an action serial with all these chase scenes and so on. Like, it it doesn't quite fit the narrative mold, yeah, that it's supposed to have. You kind of, on the one hand, you have to admire how much story it manages to cover. Like, (laughs) it doesn't have the usual Mad Scientist movie problem of nothing happening. Sure. But, like... You know, because they go to the Arctic, and then they come back, and then they do all these things, and they're running around over rooftops and all this stuff. The fact that they're running back and forth between the Gilmore and Dexter house a million times does start to get really repetitive. And the movie's biggest downfall might be that once both Carradine and Lugosi are dead, no one's left in the movie who has enough, like, personality to make you interested in caring about what happens to them. Yeah. That is definitely true. Like, I feel like that was where a lot of your... Because you really started to get fed up with the movie, like, once Lugosi was dead, and it was just the cops and Steve chasing the ape man around, because it was like, okay. Well, they weren't even doing it, like, in a way that drove tension. No. Like, everyone was just being incompetent. Kudos to Frank Moran, because he's pulling, like, he's... In full makeup, and he has Anne over his shoulder for this entire sequence, or at least a mannequin. But in any case, he's pulling, like, he's having to bear some weight. Um, And he's, you know, running all over, but the way he runs is shuffling. So it doesn't feel, like, action-driven. It's just like, okay, we're running here, now we're running there, and He also never feels like an ape man. Like, there's nothing in his performance, really, right? Like, it's all just kind of the makeup. Yeah. He's not really doing anything to feel like a primitive person. Yeah, are... the only emotion he really gives throughout his whole time as a caveman is, like, fear of the fire, mm-hmm. and... Which is reasonable. It was a real fucking blowtorch. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, let me out of this cage. Like, he doesn't really show aggression. No. Part of what bothered me is that, like... A lot of the times it felt like it was just going through the motions, yes. you know, life or excitement. Um, I really wish that there had been something more with the caveman. Um, because once he has Gilmore's brain in him, he clearly remembers Gilmore's life. Like, he tries to say, like, I'm Gilmore. And Lugosi's like, no, what's your caveman name? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Lugosi asks, like, what is your name? And he says, Gilmore. And he's like, no, 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 no. Like, before that. But then he kills his wife. And doesn't show any remorse. He's like, oops. And like, I feel like there could have been, like, we could have had it all been. We could have had, like, some sense of guilt or, like, a conscience yeah, battle they, playing out. They, they definitely could have played the ape man for more pathos than they did. 
but I think their biggest mistake here is they can't decide if he is Gilmore or just if he is the ape man with Gilmore's memories. You know, like, how much of each person is in there. Because, like, if he is Gilmore, it's fucking weird then that the happy ending of the movie is he, like, burns to death in a fire or whatever. But, like, and even if he's the ape man, it's weird that that's the happy ending. But the ape man isn't given enough, you know, Frankenstein's monster-style pathos for you to even really feel bad. Even though when you think about it, you kind of should. Like... Yeah, he, like, quote-unquote died back mm-hmm. in, like, the Ice Age in whatever traumatic way that might have been. Yeah. And the next thing he knows, because we've established that people don't remember things when they're, like, frozen. Mm-hmm. Next thing he knows, he's, like, woken up out of this ice box uh, with Lugosi. <laughs> that yeah. would be shocking in and of itself. Yeah. The, the ape man's, like, a total weak link here, because, yeah... <laughs> Once uh, Lugosi and Carradine are dead, it's like, I don't care about Steve. You no. Know? And, like, Steve's just... Like, all I care about with Steve is, like, what his hair routine is, because his hair is perfectly quaffed. Like, I need to take some notes from this guy. Steve is exactly what you expect a character in a movie like this named Steve to be. <laughs> and same with, like, Anne. Like, they might as well have just been called, like, boy and girl. But, like... <laughs> Brad and Janet. Yeah, exactly. And and the chase scene, you're totally right about the chase scene having no tension, because basically the way every... The chase scene goes to a few different locations and, and goes through a few different set pieces, but it all follows the same pattern. Ape Man goes to place. Cops go to place. By the time cops get to place, Ape Man is in other place. And cops are like, oops, and then go to other place. And they're just like one step behind each time. Yeah. And it's just very tiresome. What is funny is he, like, gets to Dexter's basement again, and he's like, no one will find us here, and then the cops show up at the door. Like, yeah, because they've been right <laughs> on your tail the whole time, and this is one of the only two places in the movie. <laughs> so we've kind of talked about what's unique with this film, what it brings to the horror genre a all mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, we've compared it a little bit to Voodoo Man. It's original and name only ape man where were you thinking for ranking well sarah i started by taking a look at where ape man is Mm -hmm. on the list which is number 95 and this is better than ape man for sure i think i think it's more cohesive i hope if in you know six months you ask i think i'll be able to remember this movie better than i'll be able to remember (laughs) ape man well ape man had like ghosts well like the the hit Ape man had some nonsense all over the place this is like a bit more cohesive like yes. we stay with the same several characters yeah we're not having to explain like why aren't you in the army kind of stuff <laughs> like yeah so i agree it's better um, than that right above Ape man is the monster maker which like you know has some good points uh like the makeup for instance mm-hmm. uh but also like, isn't as narratively cohesive as this movie and has, like, a real big pacing problem. Oh, yeah. Um, And then above that, we have Song at Midnight, where I kind of start to waver because that's a movie that's doing a lot of interesting things, but again, pacing, it's a little bit boring. Yeah, both those movies are really effective with their makeup. Like, Song at Midnight with, like, the melting face and when they're taking off the bandages. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, the Monster Maker, like, one of the better points about it is, like, how effective and accurate that makeup is to the disease that they are showing. Acromegaly? Acromegaly. I kept thinking microcephaly. Like, that's the only name that was coming in, but that's, like... That's almost like the opposite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas this makeup job, it's not... Like, when you have some close-ups... You can tell, like, okay, they, they're clearly, like, putting in some detailing with, like, for lack of a better word, eyeshadow stuff of, like, shading on the face. It's but, not bad. But it's not, like, what? That's so good. It's not like, imaginative. Especially because, like, it does not get across the idea of a man-ape. No, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, if, like, he's being played by this boxer, but, like, you know... If they had if they had done what Lugosi and Carradine did at the start of the movie and found a homeless guy in the park and like threw a Fred Flintstone costume on him, it would look <laughs> the same. 
I'm with you about this kind of being the area that I was looking at as well. Number 94, the monster maker, was my floor. Okay. Um, and then the highest I was willing to go was number 83 under the 1920 Jekyll and Hyde, but above the Devil Bat. Uh, because this is, uh, the Devil Bat's another Lugosi Mad Scientist movie, and like both this and that are ridiculous, but I feel like this is less ridiculous. <laughs> like, yeah, we weren't like laughing our socks off. Exactly. Like you do with the Devil Bat when like a giant hang glider of a bat comes flying <laughs> out of a window going, <laughs> It's so good. So I can see why you're you're looking that high up because of the unique things that this film is doing. Like the mummy's hand doesn't really do anything well. Um, that's the one where like they have like the juice that the mummy's going after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like yeah, they're planting yeah. the juice on people. Yeah, it's the one where they're actually in Egypt. Yeah, but then you have like the invisible ray here, which is quite interesting with like a proto slasher kind of vibe. So I don't know if I would go quite so high as Devil Bat. I, I, I like, yeah, I think I would agree with that. Like, you know, I don't really like Werewolf of London, but is this really better than Werewolf of London? I like, think the pacing here is better because they actually know, like like you said, the writer doesn't fully understand why tropes are things, but at least he knows that tropes exist, whereas but, Werewolf of London is happening before those tropes really exist. The flip side of that is that Werewolf of London, I think, is a better produced film. Like, doesn't look as cheap as this movie does. Comparing the makeup. Werewolf of London's still better. Yeah. Like, it's okay. Jack Pierce makeup. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think... I'm kind of feeling below Song at Midnight above Monster Maker. Okay. Is that good for you? Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, because of, like, what we've talked about with the makeup. Show the Monster Maker's makeup. That's a tongue twister. Um, it's done way better than what we see in Return of the Ape Man, but the plotting is miles ahead uh, in Return of the Ape Man. Yeah, if you if you asked me which I would rather watch again, I would definitely take Return of the Ape Man because it's kind of just like light fun compared to the Monster Maker, which in addition to being, like, boring, is also just, like, really problematic in aspects. And, and it's maddening how poorly written it is, like, how poorly plotted. Yeah, with the whole thing where, like, J. Carol Nash is not actually the character that he is because he has this complicated backstory back in Germany. But also J. Carol Nash and Ralph Morgan do not have the on-screen chemistry of Bella Lugosi and John Carradine. Yeah, I would agree with that. Even just Carradine's eye roll, like, that one moment... It has enough chemistry to blow Monster Maker out of the water. Okay, so entering the list at number 94, Return of the Ape Man from 1944, directed by Philip Rosen. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find the full list, links to the other episodes we've talked about today, um, as well as an appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our appeals ask box or contact us directly through email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. If you listen to the podcast on a service that lets you leave a rating or a review, please do so. We'd very much appreciate it. Uh, you can find the show... Uh, through your podcasting app of choice by subscribing to our RSS feed. And if you want to help us out, you can let a friend know about the show, uh, whether that's through social media or in person. Another way you can help out the show is by heading over to patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as $1 a month. At the $5 level, you get access to weekly bonus audio. And at the $10 level, you get access to... Uh, horror short fiction that I have written in the past, and if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we will do a bonus fifth episode every month covering horror-adjacent movies, stuff like... Stuff like them from the 50s. Right. With oh. the giant ants. I keep like referring to giant ants in, in these past few episodes, so... Right. Or, um, you know, you're kind of... Uh, your horror comedies, uh... Abbott and Costello meet blank. Right. <laughs> 
So that's patreon.com slash podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, keeping up the trend that has been going on for the past three episodes. No. It's another sequel. Uh, this time, it's The Mummy's Ghost, the third movie in the Karis the Mummy series, starring Lon Chaney Jr. from Universal Studios, directed by Reginald LeBorg. All right. Well, resistance is futile. We will see you folks next week. Bye. Bye.